Okay, I think uh, we should start. Um, let me first welcome everyone who's joining us for the fourth program in the uh, Interfaith Action of Southwest Michigan a discussion series about the situation in Gaza. Um, after this discussion, we have two more left in the series. Um, next Thursday, it's going to be um, Hear Our Voice. And we're going to have uh, several guests, actually. Um, it's, uh, we have someone from the JVP, the Jews Voices for Peace speaking. And we have two Palestinians, one from the West Bank and one from Gaza. And um, then the last program in mid-December is going to be uh, Gary Mason. Um, he's going to talk to us about um, possible resolutions and how to move forward in this conflict. Um, let me introduce myself. I am Naveen Khalil. I'm a member of the Interfaith Action Group. Um, I'm in the leadership team. I'm the advisor for Interfaith Collaboration and Action. I'm also a political journalist from Egypt who is now living in Southwest Michigan. Um, I'd like to give a very warm welcome to Daniel Mate. Um, he's an acclaimed composer and lyricist and playwright who has been very prolific on social media since this war on Gaza began. Um, he uh, advocates for Palestinian rights and um, he has many followers and they have actually grown since we've um, posted his bio. Almost 50,000 followers on Instagram, um, almost 11,000 um, subscribers on YouTube, and almost 10,000 followers on X, or formerly Twitter. Um, he has done some several remarkable Insta-live streams um, on his account. Most recently, it was a two-hour marathon with a reservist in the Israeli army. Um, it was fascinating to listen to. Um, and um, we're really looking forward to listening to you speak and tell us more. Okay, so Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Um, if you will, please give us a brief introduction about who you are and what has brought you here. Um, finally, to in and what has made you such an activist now? Well, thanks for having me, and I um, yeah, I hope there will be questions. In fact, I, I hope we'll start off with a question from you or anyone else because that's the only way I'm going to have anything to say. I didn't come with anything prepared, but I'm always happy to respond to what's wanted and needed in the moment. And there's plenty to say, so once you get me going, uh, that won't be a problem. Um. So I'm 48 years old. I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I grew up there. And uh, politically, it was uh, an interesting upbringing. It was almost like I I was uh, I lived in two different homes, not really, but in my home home um, in Vancouver, I lived with a mom and dad, and my father was a pretty infamous or famous, depending on which side of the conflict you were on, anti-Zionist. Um, back then, the name Gabor Mate wasn't synonymous with trauma healing and all the other things he's known for now um, globally, but rather he was a local medical doctor, a GP, 
who wrote the occasional medical column, but he was also known as kind of a political muckraker, and he had been since his student days in the late 60s at the University of British Columbia. And he himself had been a former Zionist. He really wanted to go volunteer in the 1967 war, but very soon afterwards, when he wasn't allowed to, he started reading about the actual history of 1948 and his beautiful vision of um, the Jewish people reclaiming their homeland uh, and making the empty desert bloom collapsed in a, a, a heap of, of you know, disillusionment. So by the time I was a, a tween, you know, 12, 13 years old, the first intifada had broken out and he was speaking out vocally about the abuses of the Israeli government. That's the first time I ever heard about the occupation. And he was going on CBC television and radio and he went to the West Bank and did um, a medical tour and I heard him on the radio, national public radio, and I heard him saying he had been crying every day since he'd been there and I'd never seen my dad cry. So that really made an impression on me. This issue was serious and it was close to his heart and it was scary because I could tell he was saying things that my rabbi wouldn't want me to be listening to or, uh, you know, that would be controversial if I said them in Hebrew school but also this is the other side of it I went to a summer camp that my parents happily sent me to called Camp Miriam which was a labor Zionist summer camp now labor Zionism is one historical strain of Zionism it's where the labor party came out of basically the kibbutz movement the socialist movement um, the socialist side of the, of the Zionist uh, movement and our our, our um summer camp was modeled on that now my dad had been a lifeguard there prior to his um sort of political awakening and both his brothers in the 1970s and then the early 80s had been the camp director there and both my uncles met their wives there and my cousin rachel met her husband there and it was a major part of our extended family's life we were kind of royalty at this camp and i went every summer and i absolutely loved it it was utopian because the little kids got to hang out with the big kids. We, we voted on everything together. We put money into the communal fund and decided what we would do with it instead of just having everything planned for us. We did our own work groups. So there was one group of kids that did the laundry, another did the, the garbage, another did the toilets. Proudly, happily, we'd make up songs and skits. Um, and so we just took great pride in sort of a sense of communal ownership, which is the best of what kibbutz is supposed to stand for. So I grew up in this Jewish summer camp, and this Jewish summer camp, it turns out, was affiliated with a larger organization called Habonim Dror North America, which itself is affiliated with the Habonim movement all over the world. Habonim Dror is Hebrew for the builders of freedom, and it grew out of you know, the early Zionist um, socialist settler movements. So... I was deeply involved there, and as I grew older, I got more and more you know, closer to actually being a counselor myself. I ended up leading programs, designing programs. And then by the time I was 21, maybe, uh, no, actually later than that, 22, 23, I, uh, I was the uh, program director at affili an affiliated summer camp in upstate New York. Now, by this point, I wouldn't have called myself a Zionist, and yet I was still happily, or maybe not happily, kind of in a tortured sort of way still involved but i loved it so much and i thought there was so much value and we did such good work with kids that i stick around and i tried to implement 
a program that was much more critical of Zionism than anything had been done before. And I basically succeeded. There was some pushback, but that group always had some flexibility. But still, to have a father at home who calls Israel a terrorist state, and then to have summer camp counselors who just came out of the army and are telling us about how it's the most moral army in the world, it was an interesting dichotomy. And I guess I, you know, I have to respect my, my parents for trusting me and my siblings to make up our own minds about these sorts of things. But when I saw the way that the Jewish community was censoring and blacklisting my father and the death threats he was getting from across Canada, I knew which side I was on. I just knew which side had the moral weight behind them. It's not the one doing the censoring. And I was always very proud of the way he represented, I think, the best of the Jewish tradition. And he's a Holocaust survivor himself. And um, just taking the right lessons, I think, from that. So then I went to McGill, joined an Israeli-Palestinian dialogue group. This is in the immediate aftermath of Oslo in 93, 94. Everything was looking sort of rosy for those of us who were naive enough to think that Oslo was leading anywhere good. Met some Palestinians for the first time in my life. Until that point, they had just been a concept, an abstraction. An abstraction I had sympathy for, but still an abstraction. And after college, my I kept reading about the topic. I kept up on it. And once Facebook came around, I would post angrily to anyone who would listen whenever Israel would go into Gaza and mow the lawn, as Israel calls it, by massacring people. But I wasn't an activist by any means whatsoever. I was just an opinionated Jew, and there's many of those in the world. So then October 7th comes along. And... Um, the, the fabric of our normal reality got ruptured, whoever you are. doesn't matter where you live or where you're starting from. It's, October 7th was not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen that Palestinians break out of Gaza. It's not supposed to happen that Israelis feel that level of threat and pain up close and that they feel so let down by their army and so vulnerable. That hasn't happened in... I mean, maybe ever, really, at, on that scale. And with that fabric of reality ruptured, the fabric of Israeli sanity also ruptured, and the predictable onslaught and uh, revenge started happening. And on October 8th, on a whim, uh, and just a hunch, I guess, and maybe just a sense that I needed it for myself, I picked up my phone, went outside, and took a walk. And I live streamed me just riffing, just kind of talking about what I was seeing. And what the impetus for it, I think, was I had seen an interview that Christiane Amanpour, you know, the grand doyen of CNN International News, had done with some Arab or Palestinian guest. And she could not get the interview started until she said, do you condemn Hamas? But do you condemn Hamas? He's trying to talk. No, no but do you condemn it? And it just something struck me as, uh, this is how it's going to go, huh? Well, I need to say something about this. And I didn't know what I was going to say, but I just started talking. And um, that Instagram Live ended up being about sort of the, the moral, kind of the moral irrelevance or, or of, of this whole question of condemnation and justification. Um, in this context, and the racist double standards, the way Israelis are never held to the same standard, that they must um, 
condemn their government's crimes, even though their government's crimes are far more abundant. And ultimately, talking about how, never mind whether it was justifiable, I'm not going to justify what Hamas did, but it was inevitable. And I wanted people to try to understand why it was inevitable, because it seems to me that it's a much wiser approach when something horrible happens. We can take refuge in moral condemnation and make us feel good for a second, sort of a libidinal sense of, yes, we're in the right and they're wrong and so on and so forth, the righteousness. As opposed to why was it inevitable? Because until you, you can see why it was inevitable, you can never prevent it from happening again. Because it didn't come out of a clear blue sky. It didn't come out of nowhere. It happened because of what happened on October 6th and 5th and 4th and 3rd and years and years and decades and decades back, almost a full century. So that was the thrust of it. And I didn't know who it was going to reach. And very quickly it started to take off and someone downloaded it and edited it and captioned it and put it up on, and I put it up on YouTube after he did that. And it's been seen like 150,000 times. And it's just blown me away how hungry people are for a perspective that helps people apparently ground themselves in the reality we're living in and, and sort of cut through some of the ideological gunk and try to get a, uh, a clearer picture. And obviously I'm just one person with one point of view, but the other thing I didn't see coming was just the groundswell of voices from all corners. Uh, and I'm most proud that so many of them are Jewish, but it's not only about Jewish voices. Um, in opposition, in strong opposition, in principled moral opposition to what Israel's doing, and in fact taking the critique even further than I ever thought it could be taken in North American discourse. And uh, there's just a, a kind of very tragic joy in this raising of a chorus of voices saying we see outside this paradigm and we see we will insist on a better future than what our leaders can currently see and of course the opposition to how america and canada and the uk have been completely enabling this and cheering it on and all that so that's how i sort of arrived at this point and i just kept going with the instagram lives found that they were useful to people kept doing them and um my account on instagram seems to be sort of a place for people to come and laugh or cry or but at least kind of regulate themselves and, and get oriented a bit and that's a very meaningful role to be able to fulfill it's um i don't take it for granted i'm, I'm <clears throat> moved by the response okay so what i found most interesting is the topics you talk about and the language you use was um very unlike the mainstream narrative that we are familiar yeah. with in the West, which brings us to actually the title of our talk today, which is the lexicon, the words that are being used, the descriptions that are being used. I'd like you to start off with telling us, is Zionism synonymous with Judaism? I certainly hope not, because if it is, I'm a war criminal by birth. I think it's an outrageous, egregious, transparently absurd, but unfortunately not transparent enough because people still don't see through it enough, lie and slander to say that Zionism and Judaism are the same thing. Number one, Judaism has been around forever. Zionism's 150 at most year old political project. 
people are going to tell you, well, the Jews have always longed to return to their homeland. We say next year in Jerusalem, every year at Passover. Well, we say a lot of things. You can interpret that literally. You can interpret that metaphorically. There was no political movement uh, designed to settle and take over and dominate any land, never mind the land of, of Palestine or Judea or whatever you want to call it, until the 1880s or something. And it was invented by secular European Jews like Theodore Herzl, fully assimilated Jews. They were not visibly Jewish in the least, well, maybe the beard, but they weren't religious, these early Zionists. They wanted in on the nation-state game. It had nothing to do with Judaism. Theodore Herzl would have been happy with a Jewish homeland in Uganda. That was the original idea. He had no particular interest in what we call the Holy Land. So it's absurd on its face on those grounds. I mean, this is one of these things that the Hungarians say is, is, is an expression. It's so false that not even the opposite is true. <laughs> um, although I've come around to, well, I'll say something about that in a second. So no, if Judaism wasn't the same as Zionism back in 1800, then it's not the same as Zionism now. It can't be. Judaism is an ancient set of religious, ethical, spiritual, liturgical, cultural practices. It's an epistemology. It's a way of knowing things in the world. It's a way of relating to the divine. It's a way of inquiring. Do you have a question, Vivian? Your hand is raised. Naveen, I'm sorry, are you trying to get my attention or are you waving at someone else? Okay, I'm just going to keep going. Um, so Judaism is many things, but it's not a political movement. Zionism is a political movement. Daniel? Yes. You're... What's going on? Can you not hear me? Yeah, we can. I can hear you well. No, you're fine now. Okay, N Naveen, you seem to be lagged. I don't see your mouth moving with your voice, but so it could be your connection. But I'll just keep going. Yeah. Um. What was I saying? So yes. No, Zionism and Judaism are not the same thing because there are many secular Zionists. Netanyahu puts on his Jewish best Jewish rabbi voice when he needs to for propaganda purposes, but he's a total secular Jew. Um, it's also not Zionism. Judaism is also not Zionism because there's Jew, there are Jews, religious Jews, who on religious grounds, religious Jewish grounds, completely oppose Zionism. There are sects of the Orthodox community that are virulently anti-Zionist. You'll see them at pro-Palestinian protests waving Palestinian flags because to them, Israel is sacrilege the idea that the jewish people would take it upon themselves to decide it's time to return to the holy land no that's the job of moshiach the messiah when the messiah comes then he'll lead us back to the holy land it's the height of arrogance and hubris which of course the old testament is full of god punishing the hebrews for their heads getting too swollen and taking things upon themselves and so there are religious Jews who completely oppose it on those grounds and on the grounds that it breaks all kinds of moral laws about you know not oppressing the stranger and things like that. 
there were Jews who were even sympathetic to the idea of a Jewish homeland prior to the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. I'm talking about in the first few decades of the 20th century. So they were on board for a kind of cultural Zionism, but political Zionism they were opposed to. I'm thinking of people like Ahad Ha'am and Judah Magnus and even Albert Einstein. They saw that the Holy Land had special significance for the Jews. They saw that the crisis of Jewish exile, Jews being a minority everywhere they are, was really having dire, dire consequences in Europe. They could sense the worst coming, and then it came. But they objected to the idea that the solution to that was to join the roster of you know, colonial settler nation-states. That wouldn't be good for the Jewish soul, they said. So we should have a Jewish homeland there living in peace with our Arab neighbors, as the Jewish population always has. And we should work out some deal to allow more Jewish immigration. What I'm saying is there's many different kinds of Jews. There's many kinds of Zionists. And the two things don't mean the same thing at all. And the only reason, literally the only reason why it is claimed that they are the same is to immunize people who want Israel to have carte blanche to do whatever it wants from criticism. Because if Zionism is Judaism, then what's the necessary corollary of that? Anti-Zionism or opposition to what Israel does must be opposition to Jews. It's a very, very handy little trick. It's completely bogus and intellectually and spiritually and historically empty. It's got no substance or content to it whatsoever. But it does the trick because no one wants to be called an anti-Semite, especially after World War II. Now, I've actually come around in the last couple of weeks to a radical position. It's actually not that radical. I've had the thought for a long time, and I'm not the only one. If anyone is anti-Semitic in the Zionist-anti-Zionist equation, it's not the anti-Zionists. When I'm told that because I'm a Jew who supports Palestinian rights, therefore I'm supporting an anti-Jewish cause, what you're telling me is there's only one way to be a Jew, and it's to be a militaristic nationalist chauvinist. Who thinks I'm superior on some level, which may, you know, maybe I don't consciously think it, but I believe I have the right to move from Vancouver or Brooklyn to the West Bank tomorrow and get citizenship. But Ahmed down the street, whose grandmother still carries the keys to the home she was kicked out of in 1948, can't even visit. And you're telling me that to oppose that makes me anti-Semitic? No, 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 no. You just don't like Jews with the moral compass. You just don't like the humanistic tradition in Judaism. You're the anti-Semite. This is what I've sort of come around to. And it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a rhetorical flourish, but it's it's based on fact. There's a great interview going around on YouTube right now with a rabbi named Yaakov Shapiro, who reads some incredible quotes from early Zionist leaders before the creation of the state of Israel. You know, Jabotinsky said that the Jews are an ugly people was a right-wing revisionist Zionist who really, he admitted we're settler colonialists. And he said, it's an ugly people. There's a reason that the Jews keep getting picked on. 
the most anti-Semitic statements you could find. It would, they would have been absolutely at home in Der Stürmer, these statements. And actually what's really funny is, well, I'm in a good mood because Henry Kissinger died. Um, sorry if that strikes you as more bitter out of place, but I think that <clears throat> he had enough time on this planet and did enough damage. Uh, and there's a quote that just surfaced from him in some meeting at some point where he said, you know, a people doesn't get persecuted for 2000 years for nothing. Basically, and he's he himself is Jewish, of course. But he's saying that there's something unpleasant about us. And the Zionist project, a big strain in it, it's not the only thing, but at a part of its DNA is the purification of the Jewish soul and the de-Jewification of the Jewish identity and turning it into something strong and cavalier and physical and pastoral, getting rid of the sniveling, artistic, nebishy, ghetto Jew, the shtetl Jew, and getting us into the desert with plows and shovels and machine guns and turning us into real men and women. So there's more than a little sort of racial purity, racial purification, master race rhetoric in the Zionists' canon. And, you know, of course, that sets up the obvious irony of what it, what happened to us and who we're becoming <laughs> and all that. But that's just kind of, that's just what happens with human beings, right? We If we don't heal our traumas, we become the thing that we fear and hate. So what so I'm no. hearing you, sorry. Yeah, the answer to your question is no. So what I'm hearing you, you're making a distinction between Zionism and being anti-Israeli and being anti-Semitic. They're not all synonymous. They are different. They are. Can, yeah. They could not be more different. So to be an anti-Semite, now, now, because they're different doesn't mean they can't overlap. They can. You know what a Venn diagram is? Right? You got two circles, and the two circles overlap to a certain extent, but they exist independently of each other. They're not synonymous, but there can be some overlap, and usually it's a small overlap. Well, so anti-Semitism, historically speaking, is an irrational resentment or hatred of Jewish people a belief that Jews are evil, that they're involved in some conspiracy to rule the world, that they have unfair privileges, or that their religious beliefs and practices are dirty, dangerous, unclean, that Jews are a fifth column in a society, right? That they're not actually loyal to their country, which, by the way, the existence of a Jewish state that claims that it's doing everything in my name doesn't help the fifth column concerns, right? Who is my loyalty really to? Is it to the American state, the, the Canadian state, or to the Jewish state? But anti-Semites don't need a reason to hate Jews. They'll find a reason to hate Jews, no matter what Jews do. Anti-Semitism is just hatred waiting to happen, and it'll find the evidence, as all prejudices will find a reason and a pretext. And then they'll use that to justify it. But if it wasn't that, it'd be something else. And that has been 
a long and sordid tradition throughout the world. You know, and it's there are factors, the facts that Jew, the fact that Jews have traditionally not assimilated, they've kept their customs and yet they live in close quarters with other people, you know, so tribalism, you know, who are these outsiders? What you know, it's there are understandable aspects of it, but fundamentally it's irrational, it's hateful, it's ignorant, and it's um it's not based at all on Jewish behavior. It may seize on something one or two Jews, Jewish people will do, but it's not founded in any sort of actual fact or, or, or behavior. It's not a response. And then a bunch of Jews got together and decided to create a country, a nation state with an army and a flag and a national anthem and a declaration of independence and a spot at the UN. And they called it Israel. Well, now it's a country. There are privileges and rights that countries have. Recognition, import-export laws, national foods, all kinds of stuff. There are also certain obligations they have, or at least certain things they're not immune from, which is criticism. Because countries are political entities. They do things that have consequences. That's what countries do. So to criticize Israel for what it's done and is doing, for what its leaders say and have said and are saying, for who it kills, for who it oppresses, for the wars it fights, for the excuses it makes, that's not irrational. That's called being a country. Now, and especially it's outrageous to say it's anti-Semitic if the people criticizing it are the people to whom it was done. And I assume we're going to get into the history at some point. But suffice it to say that something was done, a colossal grievous wrong was done to a people consciously, deliberately, knowingly, and ongoingly so that the Jewish state could exist. It had to be. And there are Zionist historians who have documented this in great detail. They just think it was worth it. We're talking about the Nakba in 1948, or the Israeli War of Independence, in which 750,000 Palestinians were expelled, many were killed, massacred, raped, all kinds of horrible stuff. So when the people doing the criticizing of the country that dispossessed them are the Palestinians, it's especially outrageous. It's obscene, actually to automatically pin that on, you're anti-Semitic, you're like the Nazis. The Nazis were a powerful country with all of the military behind them, bent on world domination. The Jews hadn't done anything to the Nazis except exist, and they were an obstacle. So this canard of criticism of Israel, or even anti-Zionism, being anti-Semitism, is simply a way a cudgel to shut people up and when they can't call you an anti-semite because me as the you know obviously very demonstrably culturally jewish at least i don't think i come off very waspy i'm not religiously jewish but i'm the son of holocaust survivors and grandson well then they call you a self-hating jew then they reach into the dsm-4 and find a diagnosis you know thank you dr freud that there's some somewhere deep down in my psyche i must hate myself that's the only way they could explain why I'm not supporting 
war crimes and genocide and apologetics for mass murderer and why I'm standing in solidarity with another people to whom it was done. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of the, you can see how much space it even takes me to answer this question. I wish it didn't. I wish I could just be like, laugh it off, but this is the number they've done. When I say they, I don't just mean Jewish Israelis. I mean, the U S government, I mean, Jewish organizations, Christian Zionists, whose deep love of Jews impels them to want all the Jews to move to Israel so that we can hasten the day when Jesus comes back and then all the Jews can be thrown into a lake of fire. That's their deep love of Judaism speaking. Like Pastor John Hagee, who spoke at the D.C. March for Israel uh, a few weeks ago. So, yeah, in, in my book, it's just it's it's beyond absurd to equate the two. And like I said, or maybe I didn't say it, I've never, I've been saying it to other people, I've never felt more Jewish in my life than I have in the last two months. Because for me, the Jewish tradition is dissent, speaking out, inquiry, asking questions, making filthy jokes at the darkest of times, uh, playing music, being vaudevillian, and everything else that we've done to keep ourselves sane and alive. And we've contributed so much to the world because of that. So, Okay, well, let's take it to the other side, some of the lexicon and the verbiage being used now to describe what's happening to the Palestinians. Let me add one thing, because I should just close. I, I talked about the Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. Are there people out there who fold their criticisms, their apparent criticisms of, of, excuse me, of Israel into an existing hatred of Jews? Of course there are. But there's just as many anti-Semites who love Israel because they hate Arabs too. And they want to see the Jews and the Arabs kick, kill each other, you know? But yes, it's true. You can be an anti-Semite and an anti-Zionist. But one has nothing to do with the other. Just like you can be a Jew and a National Hockey League player. It's happened. But the two have nothing to do with each other. Well, what's interesting also is Arabs are Semites, and then yes, the, that's also that's, that's that's another conversation. But 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 uh, I, as I as I say to my followers, you know, on that score, kind of sorry Arabs, we took that one. Somehow the world's given us that one. You don't really want it anyway. But you're you're completely right. Technically, it's true. But at this point, I feel like trying to argue that point is just yeah. <laughs> why would you want to be a Semite at this point? Okay. All right. Um, so let's talk about the uh, language describing what's happening to the Palestinians now. Um, genocide, ethnic cleansing, living yeah. in a concentration camp, etc. Uh, could you tell us why these are true? Because I know you've just about used every single one I've said, an apartheid state and so many others. So, you know, let's take just one at a time and explain why in your mind um, they are mm -hmm. yeah okay well, let's do them one at a time which one do you want me to start with genocide okay i'm not an expert on genocide but and when i started when i first started hearing the word applied to post october 7th i was like uh are we overshooting the runway here is that hyper hyperbole because i always thought of genocide as death camps let's organize and exterminate every single member of this population in a quick and efficient way but that's the nazi genocide that's the industrial i mean that was their real accomplishment they created this assembly line genocide 
that was extremely highly organized and partly behind the scenes. But that's not actually the legal definition of genocide. Now, there was an Israeli sociologist named Baruch Kimmerling who died at some point in the last 20 years. He's the one who called Gaza the largest concentration camp ever to exist, and we can come back to that term. But he also has a book called Politicide, and that was his description of the long-term project of destroying Palestine as a people and as an entity. And that includes ethnic cleansing, expulsions, massacres, dispersal, dispersal, dispersion, uh, and all kinds of other stuff, settling, settling land and all that. Now, I've been surprised, actually, and it's been a couple of Jewish scholars that have educated me on the term genocide. I was watching a, an Instagram video of one of them today, a long-bearded, what looks to be a religious Jewish uh, scholar. And there's another one, an Israeli secular historian, or, uh, or no, scholar, he's a genocide expert. Raz Segal, R-A-Z-S-E-G-A-L, who explained very calmly that, look, the, the definition of genocide, the litmus test or the, 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 the bar for genocide is lower than we think. You don't have to be the Nazis to qualify as genocide. Genocide is the indiscriminate targeting of a people qua that people, which is to say, they're being targeted because they are that people in large numbers. And the intent is either to kill them, wipe them out, displace them, disperse them, uproot them from their land. There's multiple different definitions. And he laid out about this guy I watched today, laid out about five of them. He said Israel's clearly matching three, maybe four. It's there in the speech. You know, intent is an important thing. And then there's the acts. So you have the intents and the intent, and then you have the means. Well, the intent is clearly articulated. It's on the lips of the high-ranking uh, Israeli officials. They're human animals. There's no distinction between uh, civilians and combatants in Gaza. Everyone voted for Hamas, which is a lie. And even if it wasn't a lie, that would be Osama bin Laden logic. The Twin Towers deserve to come down because every American voted for Bush or something like that. But it's even more of a lie in Gaza where the last election they had was in 2005 and that the U.S. and Israel punished Gaza for voting the wrong people in by imposing a 20-year siege. They haven't been able to have a... So, you know, half the population are children, which means the vast majority of people didn't even have a chance to vote for Hamas. So it it seems to be meeting the legal requirements for the term genocide and that it's a massive coordinated intentional campaign with the predictable and at times avowed consequence of wiping out a people or wiping a people from a land and there's no distinction between they're not going after particular palestinians one of their generals says on october 8th i think he said our aim is more damage than precision and it just goes on and on. You could you could speak for an entire hour just quoting the, the downright genocidal psychopathic things that Israeli leaders have said out in the open with no shame in the past. So this will bring us to the ethnic cleansing in Gaza right now. 
What is Israel doing in Gaza, do you think? Um, well, first of all, ethnic cleansing was the foundation of the state of Israel. You could not establish the state of Israel in 1948 as a Jewish state, that is, which is to say majority Jewish by law, unless you cleaned out much of that territory from its Palestinian inhabitants. I'm not going to be the best person to deliver a, a, a comprehensive or even fully accurate history. I just there's certain facts I don't have at my disposal. I would really recommend people go and watch Norman Finkelstein. Anything he's done, you should watch, but especially his interview with Michaela Peterson, who of all people is Jordan Peterson's daughter. She gave him an excellent interview and he laid out a hundred years of the history beautifully. He also did a beautiful interview with Candace Owens. But essentially, by 1947, if you wanted to have an Israel that was primarily Jews, you were going to have to move a whole lot of Palestinian Arabs out of that land. And they did. And it started before the start of the war, before the Arab armies attacked. In, in November 1947, they started operations. One of them was called Operation Clean Sweep. Cleansing, you know. And um, ethnic cleansing is also a function of moving your population into their territory. So after Israel conquered the West Bank and Gaza in 1967, they started settling the West Bank and Gaza, which is completely illegal under international law. The Geneva Convention forbids the acquisition of territory by force because those laws were put into place after the Nazis to prevent anything like that from happening again. And Israel started moving their civilian population in, creating settlements, building little towns, now making them into huge towns, mega towns, connecting them with highways that only Jews can drive on, giving them all the clean, all the best, fresh, clean water in the area, uh, with the Palestinians getting the runoff, allowing those settlers to run wild and burn down Palestinian olive groves and steal Palestinian homes. That's another kind of ethnic cleansing. You're settling your people and squeezing their people into smaller and smaller cantons uh, and in some cases you know pushing them out entirely and now what's happened in gaza over the past two months well what was the first order all palestinians in the north of gaza need to move to the south of gaza now it's very important to realize what is gaza and this is straight out of norman finkelstein too the gaza strip is five miles wide by 25 miles long I could run five miles on the treadmill tomorrow in not very long. Well, maybe if, if I was in better shape. And 25 miles is less than the length of a marathon. I think five miles is the distance from NYU to Columbia. And then 25 miles is the the length of a marathon, less than the length of a marathon. It's one of the most densely populated places on earth. 2.5 million people live there. And uh, uh, the half of that population, more than half, lived in the north. And they're being told, evacuate to the south so that we can pulverize and destroy this entire area on the off chance that there's one of your commanders um, hiding among you. Now, Israel doesn't have the right to fire a single bullet in Gaza. It's not self-defense. Israel doesn't have the right to self-defense. It does have the right to self-defense on October 7th. They could have sent in their army and defended their kibbutz members and their civilians. That would have been completely right. And they did eight hours in or six hours in. 
that's allowed. But to then on the next day launch a massive indiscriminate bombing campaign and call it self-defense. No, you don't have the right to go in one inch. You only have the right to end the occupation, the siege and the blockade. I don't have time on this call to give you all the relevant history. Again, Norman Finkelstein, Ilan Pape, the Israeli historian, is very good on this. Um, my father's appearance on Piers Morgan the other night was a pretty concise 20-minute discussion that contained a lot of this good stuff. But so ethnic cleansing, and you know, you hear Israelis exulting, and we've reached the beach at Gaza, we're going to resettle it. You know, there's clear intentions to take over land, to clean it out of Palestinians, push them into the Sinai, push them anywhere, it doesn't matter. So yeah, that term so, that term applies by definition. All right. So you were giving us the physical description of Gaza. Now, how is that a concentration camp? How is it what? A concentration camp. A concentration camp. camp. You know, or honestly, being described. These, 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 these terms don't matter all that much. The question is, there are no perfect analogies and perfect terms. But I mean, They're relatable, though, to our audience today. It's like these are coined words that are very relatable. I understand. I, I, understand. I just want to, I don't want our, I don't want our politics to hinge on this word or that word, whatever, because so David Cameron, the former UK prime minister, who's no friend to the Palestinians, called Gaza after he visited an open air prison, which is to say 150 square mile open air prison. Baruch Kimmerling, the Israeli historian sociologist, called it the largest concentration camp ever to exist. And an Israeli general, Giora Island, who's still around and still advocating for genocide by epidemic, actually, in Gaza, in Israeli newspapers, called it a concentration camp 20 years ago. And that was before Israel imposed a brutal medieval siege and blockade, preventing food from getting and accept the food Israel wanted. At a certain point, Israel had a policy of calculating very carefully the number of calories that each resident needed so that they could give them enough food to keep them just above the starvation line. So what do you call a concentrated strip of land in which a highly densely populated population lives, where they have no control over their own resources, they can't fish into their waters a certain distance, to do any decent fishing before Israeli gunboats fire on them. They have no airport because Israel bombed it. They can't leave without a permit and you can't get a permit. They can't do their own importing and exporting. They're immured inside the walls of this thing. And if they even so much as approach the walls peacefully as they did in 2018 in the nonviolent Great March of Return, they get shot down like dogs or maimed. There, was a, there were orders for Israeli soldiers to shoot below the knees. And the number of Palestinian amputees shot up. I think concentration camps are perfectly good, at least a term of art to refer to it, if not technically true. But whatever it is, it's a place where human beings have been concentrated so that they can be controlled and dominated and uh, until they figure out what to do with them. And What's happened since October 7th is that it's changed from being a concentration camp into being something more of a death camp. Because what Israel is unleashing is looking a lot and sounding a lot like what the, the, like the final solution that a lot of Israeli politicians have had in mind for some time. And it doesn't look like the Nazi final solution. It's not gas chambers. It's not crematoria. 
but it is. Let's get these parasites, these cockroaches, these human animals, all of which are terms that Israeli leaders have proudly used in the past for decades. Let's get them out of our hair once and for all so we can just live in peace. That's the Isra that's the uh, hardline Zionist idea of what peace looks like. Eliminate them, and then everything will be rosy. Okay, I'm. I'm so what, gonna... Whatever, whatever you call Gaza, this is the thing. Whatever you call, I don't see people get tied up in these semantic arguments. Whatever you call it, a prison, a jail, a slave camp, whatever, whatever you call it, you have to face the material reality of the people living there if you want to understand who broke out of those gates on October seventh. So pick your own term, whatever you like. Have it be faithful to the facts. And then you have to deal with what would you expect from people born into that fill in the blank, whatever you want to call it. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to stop asking you questions. I have more, but I'm going to stop and I, I'll have um, anyone else come in. I think um, we have Sid, who's also, uh, Sid and Larry, they are um, co-moderators of the series. Larry, I think, is ready. Would you like to go ahead? Thank you. I, I would. Um, I, I appreciate um, your sharing your perspective. I share many of your um, points of view. However, um, I think what the folks on October 7th did was horrible. And I don't think we can just gloss that over and pretend it didn't happen. And yes, I'm sure uh, it's important to understand the context, but that doesn't make it any less horrible. Be that as it may, I agree what the Israeli government is doing is horrible. What's what's a way forward? What's a way to move to a better place? Sure. Thank you for that question. And thank you for pulling me back to a place that, you know, I should say, of course, it was horrible. It was a terrible, terrible thing, and I don't justify it at all. There's no justification for civilians losing their lives in any way, much less brutal ways. There's a lot of cloudy issues around the exact what's and what happened on that day. A lot of Israeli propaganda has proved to be exaggerated and or sometimes fabricated, but very clearly atrocities were committed and sometimes gleefully and wantonly and uh, quite beyond taking hostages, which is a political tactic in a resistance. That's also horrible. But that always happens in a context. But there were there were atrocities of of a very brutal scale that happened on that day. And I have friends in Israel who know people who were taken and who who were killed. And uh, some of the people killed were actually peace activists. They're people who see things pretty close to the way you and me see them. Right. V Vivian Silver, the Canadian Jewish activist, was murdered. Yeah. You know, nothing could possibly convince me that she just you know. You know, she's a she's a settler colonist. She deserves it. No, no one deserved it. Now, when I zoom back and I'm looking for where to place the blame, my eyes go to the people who did it. Yes, every human being is morally culpable for the things they do. My eyes don't stop there, which is why I'm giving you the more of the background, because as many Israelis know, their go their own government has put them in harm's way in all kinds of ways. So even if we're going to acknowledge, and we must acknowledge if we don't want to become morally insensate, how horrible it was on that day. 
it's I still think it's incumbent upon us to look beyond just the perpetrators to look at the power system that made that day and those actions more likely, if not inevitable. Now, to your your question about what next, I don't know. I know what I would like to see in the long term future, but what I would like doesn't really matter. I mean, I know what needs to happen now is a permanent ceasefire. A cessation of all support, military support for Israel as long as it's committing war crimes. Our governments have something to say about that. The only reason Israel can run wild the way it does every few years is the ongoing tacit and often very vocal support of Western governments. It's absolutely been shameful what Western governments have been doing this. They're just as as guilty and complicit as Israel is because without U.S. support, Israel couldn't afford a single tank. They don't have a military economy of their own. Billions and billions of dollars every year in not even loans, just gifts, military gifts, contracts, all that. So what needs to happen is a cessation of the crimes. Stop bombing Gaza. Stop funding and arming the settlers in the West Bank to terrorize ordinary Palestinians and reinforce the and re-entrench the crimes of the Nakba, terrorize Palestinian villages, all that kind of stuff. It's happening every single day. And then have all the hostages released and trade them for the Palestinian prisoners that are detained. I mean, this is the thing. The way it's portrayed is Hamas attacked. This is the only reason that it matters, actually, that we not just say these evildoers who did this evil thing did evil period no not period because they didn't do it out of some 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 satanic bloodlust to see jews suffer maybe that came out along the way but the purpose was they wanted aid they yes they wanted to inflict hurt on israel but they also wanted palestinian political prisoners released including men women and children who have been detained at gunpoint roused from their beds in the middle of the night, kidnapped and held in administrative detention for months, sometimes years at a time with no trial, no judge. Renewable, the sentence is renewable every six months. The military courts have a 99% prosecute or, or conviction rate. Total kangaroo court. And you see the condition these Palestinian prisoners come out in. They're looking a lot worse for wear than the Israeli hostages are. So all I'm saying is, there was a calculation, a political calculation that Hamas made, and they did that thing. So now, Israel's got, if we want something to change, and Israel wants its hostages back, then it should it should continue to do what it's doing, negotiating. And then there has to be a diplomatic solution to the conflict. Now, I don't know what that looks like. 20 years ago, I would have said, let's go with the international consensus for the last many decades, which is the two-state solution, UN Resolution 242, which Israel and the United States have blocked or you know opposed in the UN every single year since 1970-whatever, whenever it was first introduced. The problem is Israel, with full U.S. support, has made a two-state solution virtually impossible with facts on the ground. If you look at the actual map of the West Bank now, it's no longer any kind of contiguous Palestinian territory that could be 
cobbled together to create a contiguous state. It's Swiss cheese. It's all these curly cues and roads uh, of, you know, and, and Jewish settlements and all this kind of stuff. So it's, and Israeli peace activists on the ground have been saying this for a couple of decades, that the two-state solution is effectively dead, not because of an unwillingness on the Palestinian side, but because of a demonstrated Israeli commitment that it should never come to pass. And pro-Israel propagandists like to talk about the Hamas charter, which says there will never be, a, you know, we must wipe Israel off the map and the old version of it that talked about killing the Jews. Well, the Likud charter, the charter of Israel's biggest political party, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, says there will never be a Palestine, that from the river to the sea, Israel is ours, all of it. So that's a one-state situation. Now, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and B'Tselem, the Israeli Center for Human Rights reporting, have all come out with reports in the last few weeks saying Israel is effectively de facto an apartheid one state from the river to the sea. It's not, a, it's not one state. It's not a state that's occupying another piece of land. The whole thing is the same regime. And it's apartheid because half the people don't have any rights. Well, it seems to me that if that's the case, if that's a faithful rendering of the facts, then you have to deal with it like you would deal with an apartheid regime. And how you deal with an apartheid regime is not, probably not to separate into two states, but rather to end the apartheid. And that's not a hyperbolic use. I mean, there's a legal definition of that term too. And plenty of South African veterans of apartheid have used it in reference to Israel and Palestine. And you create a one-state solution, a binational state, federated, two flags, two land, two anthems. I don't know how it works. I'm not a politician. I like the idea of it. I like the idea that, you know, there could be a, a way to re retain a Jewish homeland, Jewish character, Jewish culture there. The Jews aren't going anywhere anyway. There is no solution in which all the Jews leave. That's just not happening. That's just a scary bedtime story that they tell us to say, well, they want to kick us all out. Well, they're not going to kick you all out. It's not going to happen. No one's going to get everything they want. The best solution I can think of is one that transforms the nature of that land into a sane, humane, modern, egalitarian, pluralistic country that it recognizes the rights and claims of all of its people. And even though that looks bloody unlikely right now, it also strikes me as distinctly possible somehow. I don't know how, but at least that's, the vision, that's the vision towards which I would want to work. Yeah. I said from your mouth to God's ears. Inshallah. And we'd have to, and this is the thing. This is a hump that many Zionists have, ha have had found it impossible to get over for years and years and years. But I think the hump is getting lower and lower. Like at this point, what would it, what would we be actually giving up to give up this? How safe is the Jewish state? How is that going for us? You know, we tried it. We've done everything. We've doubled down. Israel is becoming the pariah state of the world. And it's endangering not just its Palestinian civilians, not just its Jewish citizens. It's endangering the entire planet. This could escalate into a world war. So, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. May, may it be so. And may people see their self-interest in it. But for that to happen, and this is what I really fear, Israel's so far gone in terms of its military and political leadership. It's a lunatic state, as Norm Finkelstein called it 12 years ago. 
always ahead of the curve. And when you have a lunatic state that has that much power and that much cachet in the world political system and that much cover and backing, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which it doesn't take a massive, massive, massive defeat in order to wake it and shake it out of its delusions. And that is a terrible thing to contemplate because that's a bloodbath. I don't want to see that. So I want to remain hopeful and full of possibility and at the same time unflinching and looking at the realities so that we don't start going into some kind of fake kumbaya thing. The Israeli soldier that I debated on Instagram a few weeks ago says that as a Jew, I'm his brother and the Palestinians are our cousins. And that once we're finished wiping Hamas off the face of the planet, then at some point we can negotiate the Palestinians' right to return and we'll all live together. But what he's talking about is a sentimental kumbaya kind of chauvinist coexistence, which doesn't include the step of accounting and atoning for what's actually happened and, and redressing the power imbalances. So I think morally mature people like you and me and us can hold both things at once, the, the beautiful vision and the unwillingness to bypass reality in order to get there. Thank you. Sid? Uh, given the time, uh, nothing to offer except a postscript around uh, lexicon. Uh, I think uh, we tend to describe the Palestinians who have been uh, released in the hostage exchange uh, solely as prisoners. And in fact, uh, by and large, the majority are detainees uh, subjected to either arbitrary or indefinite uh, detention, uh, but without uh, being accused or convicted of uh, crimes. That's absolutely right. And speaking of nomenclature, we refer to the Israeli hostages. Well, functionally, there are 2.5 million Palestinian hostages in Gaza, everyone who lives there. If you accept the characterization of Gaza as an open air prison or a concentration camp or whatever else you want. And it's a permanent state of hostage taking. Israel holds the, their fate in their hands, you know. So whatever way you look at it, the, the sheer scale of the inequality of power is monumental. Which is why whenever anyone says to me, do you condemn Hamas? Well, what about them? I say, well, for, I, I can't affect them. They don't listen to me. <laughs> I'm not a member at all of that constituency. I'm a Canadian living in America, two countries that are using tax dollars to support what Israel's doing, and I'm a Jew, and they say they're doing it in my name, so I'm going to put my focus there, even if the balance of blame and power were equal, and it's not. Um, but um, in conclusion, I'd like to thank you very much for your time, Daniel. Um, I think this was very um, enlightening and informative. Definitely some new views that many had not heard before, I feel. So I'd like to thank you and I'd like to thank everybody who hopped on this call and we'll see you next week on Hear Our Voice.